This is the last message in our series on marriage God's way. And it's the most controversial message because of the culture in which we live. Um, I put it last because I believe that after talking about marriage week after week after week and seeing God's design of marriage to bring together male and female for a lifetime and seeing God's purposes in marriage, it will become obvious uh, that homosexuality doesn't fit into that. Um, But we need to realize that God has spoken positively about marriage and negatively about marriage. In other words, God has stated positively this is what marriage is. He's defined it. He's given us the purposes and intentions of marriage. He's given us the roles for husbands and wives in marriage. And then negatively, He's also said very clearly, uh, very directly, unequivocally, He said, this is not marriage. This is a distortion. Uh, this is a perversion. And you are not to practice these things. And in order to be Um, faithful to God's Word, we have to proclaim the whole counsel of God, um, those parts that are positive, those parts that are negative, those parts that people enjoy hearing, and those parts that make people feel uncomfortable, um, because we know that all of God's Word is profitable and beneficial. Um, So this morning, uh, we're going to talk about a very important topic. Um, 1 Corinthians 6. Verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, for men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray together. Father, we're told in Isaiah, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Father, that is our culture, especially as it relates to this area of homosexuality. But we thank You that we do not wander around in the darkness. We thank You that You have given us Your truth. And Father, help us to be a people who are committed to the truth, who stand on the truth, and who speak the truth in love with Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Martin Luther once said, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point where the world and the devil are that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Luther's warning surely applies in our day to the issue of so-called gay marriage. It is not the only issue of the day, um, but it is one of the prominent issues of the day. Uh, R.C. Sproul Jr. made a observation one time, and I think he is right. He said future generations, and by future generations, he said two, three hundred years from now, our descendants are going to look back on our day, our generation, and they're going to say that was the generation 
who rejected God's design for marriage in the name of tolerance and embraced so-called homosexual marriage. And I think he's right. They're going to look back and they're going to say at the beginning of the 21st century, that's when a pivotal turn took place and how the culture defined marriage. And Luther is surely correct when he says it's the issues of the day that test the mettle of the soldier. Will we speak about what's going on in our culture? And we can't pretend that it doesn't matter. It does matter. I heard about a prominent church that has multiple campuses and they were doing a series on the relevant issues of the day. And people were wondering, are they going to address the issue of homosexual marriage? And they said no, because it only affects roughly 2% of the population. Uh, It doesn't affect just 2% of the population. Uh, It affects everybody. And I bet everybody in this room, to a greater or lesser extent, has been affected by this issue. Let me give you one example. Uh, Pastor Anthony, who pastors of the church that meets in this building after us, has been affected by this issue. Um, His five-year-old daughter goes to a a public school, and one of her classmates had two moms. And she said, you can't have two moms. That's not right. That goes against the Bible. Pastor Anthony receives a telephone call by the school And they call him into the school as though his daughter is a bully, tyrant, troublemaker, calling him on the carpet. Your daughter cannot say these things. How dare she say these things? And he just politely, respectfully said, she's just saying what I have taught her. So here he is, just minding his own business. His daughter just trying to live the Christian life. It's treated like a bigot, a hate monger. This this is affecting all of us. And let me say that God is calling ministers especially to be bold and to address this issue. We cannot be quiet. This is what Paul said to the Ephesian elders in, in Acts 20. In verse 26, he said, Therefore I testify to you this day, that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, that's a very important passage. He says, I'm innocent of your blood. And he can say that because he goes on to say, I proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. All of it from beginning to end, whether you wanted to hear it or not, whether it was popular or not, whether I would be condemned for speaking the truth or not. And Paul sees himself like Ezekiel who was called to be a watchman for the house of Israel. And God said, you need to warn this people. And if you don't warn them, their blood will be upon you. But if you do warn them and they don't turn away, then you're innocent of their blood. So God is saying, you have to speak out. If you don't speak out, if you keep your mouth silent, you're guilty. There is such a thing as a guilty silence. So we have to speak out. We have to speak the truth in love. Now, what I want to do this morning is just briefly work through uh, this passage in Corinthians. And then I want us to consider six points of application. So let's begin with the passage. It really is uh, very, very straightforward. Paul says to these believers, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The implication here is very clear. Not everybody inherits the kingdom. Not everybody is going to heaven. And that right away is not very popular in our culture. But we have to be clear about that. Not everybody inherits the kingdom of God. And then Paul continues on. And he says, do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, 
nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice that before Paul gets to his list, he says, do not be deceived. Why does he say that? Do not be deceived. It's real obvious, isn't it? He says it because some were deceived. This could be translated, stop being deceived. But either way, he says it because people were deceived. And we'll come back to that a little later. Now, you'll notice that Paul provides a sampling of various behaviors that keep people out of the kingdom. Uh, there were a list of nine in the ESV. In your translation, there might be um, ten. And I'll explain why that is in, in just a minute. But why this list? Uh, why did Paul put together this list of sins? Which includes four sexual sins. Why, why this list? Well, he didn't make this list out of thin air. I think it's very obvious, again, if we just think about it for a moment. He picked this list because he knew of the sins that the Corinthian church was struggling with. I mean, it does no good to talk about sins that another church is struggling with. He's addressing the Corinthians and the Corinthian church, so he addresses their issues. And this church was rife with sexual sin. And actually, uh, to Corinthize, that term, to Corinthize means to engage in sexual immorality. That's, that's what the very term to Corinthize meant. Uh, Corinthians basically was the sin city of the ancient world, if you will. And let me refresh your memory in case you've forgotten. Uh, in the previous chapter, 1 Corinthians 5, this is what we read in verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that, that is not even tolerated among the pagans. Isn't that quite a statement? There's, there's sexual sin in the church that the pagans don't even tolerate. And then he says, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant, or, or you're proud of this. He says, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. You're, you're proud of this. You should be grieving over the fact that there's such immorality in your midst that, that you're tolerating. Think of what you're doing to the reputation of Jesus Christ. Think of what's happening to the church. The Apostle Paul basically is saying to his church, what is wrong with you? Would you open your eyes to what's taking place in your midst? So sexual immorality was a big problem in this church. Now, why was it a problem in this church? Why were they unfazed? I think because they had become immune to it. They lived in a culture where they were just bombarded with sexual immorality. And when that happens, you become immune. And that's what our culture is doing. We're, we're slowly, if, if we're not careful, we can become immune. I was telling Michelle the other day, the media is very intentional about this. So now you'll turn on television and you'll see two men kissing and you'll be like, yeah. And then you'll see that again and again and again. And you might say, yes, the first time. After a hundred times, you go, ah, oh, boy, I'm so uncomfortable when I see that. But after you've seen that a thousand times, what is your response? Yeah, it's not for me, but for some other people. Very intentional. You, you break down people and how they respond. And our culture is very systematic in doing that. You, you become immune when you're just surrounded by it. And that was the Corinthian church. And Paul said, you have to be careful. Don't be deceived. You think this is normal because you're surrounded by it. Do not be deceived. People who practice these kinds of behaviors will not inherit the kingdom. And then he gives a list. And we won't go through it in detail, but just quickly. Uh, first of all, he says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral. Uh, some translations have fornicators. Uh, this is a reference to sex uh, before marriage. 
This is sex before marriage. And then he says, nor idolaters, nor adulterers. Uh, this is sex outside of marriage. Now, let me pause here for a moment. Why, why does God condemn before marriage or outside of marriage? Is, is God prudish? Is God against sex? Is He Victorian? Uh, he is not. What does God say in the very next chapter? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's God who says, I've created this beautiful gift for marriage couples. And then He says, enjoy. Don't deprive one another. To borrow the language from Song of Solomon, get drunk on the love of one another. Did you know that? There's actually a command in the Bible to get drunk <laughs> with the love of one another. In Proverbs 5, 18 and 19, he says, Enjoy the wife of your youth. Enjoy her. Indulge. God created this. God says, enjoy. God is not prudish. You know what God is doing? God is putting protective boundaries around sex and marriage because it is so precious, because it is so beautiful, because it is so powerful. God is not against sex. It, it'd be like someone going to an art gallery and taking out a can of spray paint and painting a big Z and, and you say, stop that! And then someone says, why are you getting all upset? Are you against art? No, I'm for art. I'm against vandalism. It's because I'm for art that I'm all outraged. God is for sex. That's why He's outraged when He sees vandalism. No, don't do that. You're corrupting it. You're perverting it. And then he goes on and he says, neither men who practice homosexuality. Now, as I said, in the ESV, there's a list of nine sins. You might have a list of ten, depending on your translation. Some say um, effeminate. Some say male prostitutes. And then those who practice homosexual sexuality. Um, this is what it says in the Greek. And I need to get... A little specific because you need to understand the argument that's made. Um, in the Greek, what we have here is two different terms. And it refers to the passive and then the active participants in homosexuality. And this, this is the footnote um, that I have in my Bible. It says, the two Greek terms translated by this phrase refer to the passive and active partners in consensual homosexual acts. So, Paul is being very clear here, whether you're the active participant or the passive participant in consensual sex, it's wrong. It's a sin. You cannot practice this kind of behavior. And I'm being very clear here, not only because the Bible is clear, but because the argument is given that the Bible doesn't condemn all acts of homosexuality. It only condemns violent acts of homosexuality. So, for example, if you bring up Sodom and Gomorrah and you say, look at the homosexuality that was rampant in that culture and then God brought judgment on that culture because of that behavior, the argument will be, but it wasn't consensual sex. It was violent sex. They wanted to rape the angels who had come. That's what God is against. Rape. Not consensual sex. That's not what this passage says. This passage is saying even consensual homosexual acts is wrong. So the Bible is very clear and I'm just letting you know what the arguments are given. Now, let me ask you this question. Um, should any of these sins be celebrated in a culture? 
none of these should be celebrated. I mean, how would the culture respond if we said, we think we should stop punishing thieves. People should be allowed to just go over to their neighbor's house and break into their house. We wouldn't celebrate that. Do we, do we celebrate adultery? Not, not for the most part. Do we celebrate fornication? There might be some question there, right? Do we celebrate drunkenness? might be some question. But for the most part, we don't celebrate any of these. But for the first time in the history of this nation, we're now celebrating homosexuality. And I mean that. We're, we're celebrating. And, and it has to be one way or the other. Either this is wrong or it's right. Which means either it should be cursed or it should be celebrated. There, there's no middle road here. And this is why you can see it in our culture. You have to decide one way or the other. You're on this side or that side. There, there's no middle road. And people are being forced to be on one side or the other. But God has spoken very clearly um, about this issue. Now, at the end of verse 10, note that He says once again, uh, people who engage in these types of sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. We need to be very clear about what's at stake. People's eternal destinies are at stake. We're talking about heaven and hell. This, this is not a trivial matter. And then perhaps the most encouraging phrase, um, not only in this passage, but perhaps um, in the entire epistle, and such were some of you. It's beautiful. Such were some of you. You know what? Every single one of you was on this list before you were converted. You were. Some, some were or another. I, I've looked at this list. I was on this list. Every single one of you. And, and because I know you and many of your backgrounds, I can say, and such were some of you. You engaged in some of these behaviors some of these activities. And Paul could say that about the Corinthians because he knew them. But this is the heart of the Gospel. God takes sinners, perverse sinners, wicked sinners, and He saves them. And I love the next, the next phrases. And, and here I'm, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to put on your Greek glasses. I brought mine. I hope you brought your Greek glasses and I mean this because I don't like the ESV, but this is how it's translated, um, literally. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. Uh, some of your translations have three buts and they should be in there because they're in the original. And just a little, little Greek grammar. Uh, there's two different words for the um, adversative here. Um, there's there's day, which is kind of a, a mild but. Sometimes it's but, sometimes it's and. And then there's Allah, which is a little stronger. So there's, and such were some of you, but. And then there's such were some of you, but. That's what we have here. And it's very clear. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So the contrast is very strong and the reminder is this is who you were until God intervened in your life. You were polluted. You were corrupt. You were dirty. But God washed you as symbolized in baptism and He cleansed you. And He sanctified you. He took you... He set you apart for Himself, for holiness. He justified you. He forgave you of your sin. And then He clothed you in the righteousness of Christ so that you could be a part of His family. And He did that all in the name of Jesus Christ. And He did that by the Spirit of God. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You didn't do anything to earn it. You couldn't do anything to earn it. I was reminded just 
just yesterday of how great this work of God is. Um, we had a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses uh, come to our door and they read some Scripture and, and, and they told me that you have to be righteous um, to be a part of God's kingdom. And I said, how righteous? And she said, I don't know. And I said, I don't know if I'm righteous enough. Uh, I was a fornicator. I used to do drugs. I was a drunk. I said, maybe I'm not righteous enough. Maybe I'm not worthy of the king. How righteous do you have to be? And she said, I don't know. You, you, you have to believe me and you have to work. I said, okay, you have to believe and you have to work. How much work do you have to do? And she said, I don't know. And I said, that is a terrible way to live. I wanted her to see that she's working for her salvation and she can't do nothing. I said, that's a terrible way to live. I said, that means that you go to bed every night and you lay down and you think, I hope I've done enough, Lord, but I don't know that I've done enough. And she said, no, 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 no. I know my heart. I said, but we have to be righteous. I said, how righteous do you have to be? And I was pressing her on this. How righteous do you have to be? How many good works do you have to do? She said, you... You just have to do your best. And I said, that's not good enough. I said, you haven't done enough. I said, the standard is perfection. The standard is Jesus Christ. You have to be perfectly righteous. I said, you're not perfectly righteous. You're in trouble. She said, well, I feel... And I stopped her and I said, can I just stop you for a moment? I said, I'm not trying to be mean. Okay, just please understand my heart. I'm not trying to be mean, but who cares what you feel? I said, what does the Bible say? I, I said, can you read Romans 3.28 for me? For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I said, what, what does that mean? We, we, we have to believe and then we have to do good works. I said, no, no, no. I, I said, What's the other half? She shut her Bible. She said, I don't know. I said, open your Bible. I said, what's the other half? For we maintain that a man is justified by apart from works of the law. And then she just went out. I, I wasn't getting anywhere. But, but I, I was reminded of how gracious God was to me. Not because of anything that I had done, but just through simple faith in Christ. He, I was forgiven and the righteousness of Christ was given for me, and I didn't have to work for my salvation. I couldn't work for my salvation. This is a gift of God. And this passage makes it so clear that God will take any sinner and He can transform them in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of His Spirit. There is hope for everybody. And we got to get this message out. Now, what are some of the implications of this passage and, and this issue, and there are, there are so many, obviously we're not going to cover all of them, but I want us to think through uh, some of the issues. Uh, first of all, I want to say that we need to be careful not to promise too much, but not to hope for too little. On the one hand, we don't want to promise too much, but we don't want to hope for too little. And this is what I have in mind. We want to be careful not to promise people that if you just put your faith in Christ, your life will dramatically change. You'll go from having same-sex attraction to having attraction to the opposite sex just like that. Maybe. Maybe not. On the other hand, we don't want people to hope too little. If there's anything we want to have in this passage, it's hope. And we want to tell people, He will cleanse you. He will wash you. He will forgive you. He will fill you with His Spirit. And He will transform your life, whether it's transformed instantly in this area or whether it's transformed slowly. Even painfully slow. He will transform your life. And, and this happens with other issues, I think. Um, when I first became a Christian, I, I remember I had a good friend and several times a week he, he would go to AA meetings because he just he struggled with drinking. He just went every single week. And then I, I came across another Christian who struggled with, 
were drinking and, and he didn't go to any AA meetings. And I said, well, well, how come you don't go to AA? And he said, well, well, God delivered me and it's, it, it's not a struggle for me anymore. And it was, it was a great picture. I was reminded that for some people, God might deliver them from this area and it's, it's not a struggle anymore. For other people, they're Christians, they're saved, but this area will continue to be a struggle in their life. And I think every single one of us can say, when I became a Christian, God really helped me with this area. But boy, this area, I'm still struggling with 25 years later. Oh. So, so I think we, we have to be careful about what we, what we promise. Again, we don't want to promise too much, but there is always, there's always hope. Another implication, we need to realize that disoriented desires is not the same as identity. Let me say that again. Disoriented desires is not the same as identity. Let me stick with alcohol. I, I went to an AA meeting with, with this friend, and uh, may, many of you know, even if you haven't gone to a meeting, you've seen this, you know how they start their AA meetings. They, they go around, they introduce themselves. Hi, my name is so-and-so. I'm, a, I'm an alcoholic. You know what I want to say? No, you're not. You're not an alcoholic. And I want to say, you're not a homosexual. And I want to say, you're not a thief. In the sense that it is part of your makeup. It's a behavior that you struggle with. Okay, but that is not who you are. That's very important. That is not who you are. Labels. We have to be so careful with labels. I talk to people. Schools do this sometimes. They'll, they'll label kids. That is, that is so dangerous when you, when you do that. You have to be so careful because all of a sudden, then they say, this is who I am. There's nothing I can do about it. I'll never change. So we have to be very careful with labels. It's one thing to have desires. It's another thing to say, that's who you are. You'll never change. Yes, we have wrong desires. Even as Christians, we all have wrong desires. Every single one of us in this room has dysfunctional, disoriented, maybe you just want to call them sinful desires. We all do. That's why we sin. Where do our sins come from? Sinful desires. That's in some ways, that's the very heart of the battle as a Christian. This, this is what we read in Galatians 5. Verse 16 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That's why we have to walk in the Spirit. So we don't gratify the desires of the flesh. And then in the next verse, Paul says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You know what that is? That's the battle that you and I are engaged in every single day. When we wake up tomorrow morning, you know what the battle is going to be? Got the desires of the flesh over here, got the desires of the Spirit over here, and they're going to duke it out, and I'm coming to God, I'm praying to God, I'm taking advantage of the means of grace, the Word of God, prayer, fellowship, so that the Spirit can get the upper hand and I don't give in to desires of the flesh. This, this is a bet. We all have this. We will all have this until we get to heaven. So this is the battle and we all need to fight this battle. It's, it's just going to be a different area. You're going to have an area. I'm going to have an area. He's going to have an area. She's going to, it's, it's going to be different for everybody. But this is the battle and we have to fight. Another implication, number three, we need to maintain the truth and love paradox. What's a paradox? A paradox is when you put two things together and they seem like they don't go together. We want the truth that homosexuality is wrong and we want to speak it in love. It seems like those two don't go together. It seems like you have to decide. So, either you have those on what we could call uh, the left wing 
who say we need to be loving, we need to be tolerant, we need to say this is okay. Or we have those on the right wing who say this is wrong and we hate this behavior, we despise this behavior, we despise the people who do it. We want to be in the middle. We want to say, you know what? This behavior is wrong and I love you. And that's not easy, is it? That's hard. That's hard. Because we know that that's the tension we want to have. We know this is what we want to say to anybody who struggles any sin. We want to say, that's wrong. Don't engage in that kind of behavior. Those people don't inherit the kingdom of God. And we want to say, I love you. I care about you. We know that that's hard. Especially when we live in a culture that's forcing you to be on one side or the other extreme. But we have to fight through that. But let me also say that we're probably going to be misunderstood. But we have to risk it knowing in our hearts that we really do love. Perhaps it's like a doctor who says to someone, you know what, you have this lump, it's cancerous. We have to take it out. You know what that doctor just did to that patient? Ruin their day. Some of you know you've gotten that diagnosis. It ruins your day. You don't sleep well that night. You are upset. You are disturbed. Why did the doctor say that? Why would he do that? Because he loves you and he wants you to know you have this problem. But we can fix it. We have to know that we're walking in the footsteps of the great physician and we're saying this because we love them and we care about them. We care about their soul perhaps more than they care about their soul. And we're just praying to God that He would use our loving conversation, speaking the truth, so that maybe they would go home and they would be disturbed and they would say, perhaps there is help for me though. Maybe if I did cry out to God, He, he would deliver me. And, and we have to know that God will use our words. And people can call us what, whatever they want. But we have to know before God, we're saying this in love. And we have to know, you know what? There could come a day when we're standing before God and He says, remember this hard conversation? I used it. I want to introduce you to Joe. I want to introduce you to Jane. They're in the kingdom because you love them enough to tell them the truth regardless of what people would think about you. And God uses those. I remember years ago, I was speaking about abortion on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And I can remember there was a woman sitting right over there. She only attended our church one time. And I remember her telling me afterwards, you know what, you've, you've convinced me. I've I changed my mind. You're right. This is wrong. She called me a week later on the phone. She said, you know what, I didn't know it at the time, but I was pregnant when I was in the church. And now I'm not going to abort the child. So I praise God. Controversial subject. Up, up, like, but God used it. And, and we have to know God is going to use these conversations and maybe we won't have the privileges of them coming back to us. Maybe we will, but God will use them. If we can speak the truth in love and leave the results up to God. Another implication, and I think this is an important one, the real controversy may be more about the Bible than about homosexuality. The real controversy may be more about the Bible than about homosexuality. I believe it was Mark Twain who said, it's not the parts in the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts that I do understand that bother me. <laughs> and I think that relates to this whole issue of homosexuality. You know what the problem is? It's not that they're unclear. The problem is that they're too clear. One Christian said, why, why can't we just address homosexuality like we address the topic of baptism or the millennium? And, and here's the answer. Uh, whether you believe in baptizing babies or not, if, if you're honest, you will say that we're dealing with inferences. In other words, there's no direct command saying, Thou shalt baptize babies, nor is there a command saying, Thou shalt not baptize babies. Um, we're putting together 
theology. We're putting together inferences. It's not as direct, which is why I'm, I'm more tolerant. Same with the millennium. There's only one passage in the Bible that talks about the thousand years. It's very symbolic. It's hard to understand. Uh, so I think we should be tolerant of different views. But, but here's the truth. Homosexuality doesn't fit in that category. Um, we're not putting together this doctrine by inferences. This is one of these places where we have very direct, unequivocally clear, thou shalt not commands. And again, I think this is the real problem. We have them in the Old Testament. We have them in the New Testament. Just so you can get a handle on these. Leviticus 18.22 You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. God couldn't be any clearer. Uh, don't do this. And he uses very strong terminology to describe it. He says, it's an abomination. It's not a practice that you should be a part of. Leviticus 20.13 If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination they shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. There were certain uh, sins in the Old Testament that were not only sins, they were also crimes. And there were also sins that were crimes and crimes that deserved the death penalty because in God's eyes they were so heinous. So the Bible is clear that this is a wrong, this is a crime, and it's a crime that's up here. Um, this is serious. And then when we come to the New Testament, it's addressed again. We already saw it in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, Paul addresses it in Romans 1 as well. You can look at that passage. And it's also addressed again in 1 Timothy 1.10 where God says these laws are for unlawful people, including those who practice homosexuality. So again, here's the issue. Will we accept the Bible or not? And this is where the challenge is for the church. Are we going to stand on the Word of God or are we going to be swayed by popular opinion? And you know our whole culture is about popular opinion, is it not? I mean, you just turn on any news show. I don't care how conservative it is. And you'll see, well, surveys say that such and such presented percentage of the population are in favor or against so-called gay marriage, right? That, that's how we base our standards. What, what does the culture say? How many people are for it? We're really living a pure democracy. Laws are based on the majority, which is nothing more than mob rule. And in the church, we're being challenged whether or not we're going to stand on God's Word. And, and tragically, um, pastors are capitulating. I mean, it really is um, sad to see how many are turned away. And we go back to Luther's statement, don't we? It's on this issue right here that rages in the culture where you're going to be tested and we'll see where you really stand. Another implication. Uh, quickly, uh, remove the boundaries that define marriage and just about anything goes. Let me say that again. Remove the boundaries that define marriage and just about anything goes. I was asked one time if um, I was against this issue because I was afraid of the slippery slope. Um, I am afraid of the slippery slope, but I don't think it began with homosexual marriage. I really think in modern time it began with egalitarianism uh, when we said that um, the man is not the head, the woman doesn't have to be submissive, they're really equal. Uh, in other words, as one pastor said, we have two heads. He said, but unfortunately a household with two heads is a monster um, but that's really when it when it began, I, I believe, because then it said, okay, well, we just have two people kind of living together. There's not an order and a structure to this. And then it was just a step further when we have a man and a man and a woman and a woman. But I want you to think about this. We're redefining marriage. What's the new definition? If it's not a man and a woman, 
covenantally bound for a lifetime, what is it? What is it? And, and just listen to what they're saying. This is basically what it is. It's a loving relationship. Rob Bell, pastor, said this, so-called pastor. Rob Bell said, I'm all for fidelity. I'm all for love. Whether it's between a man and a woman, whether it's between a man and a man, whether it's between a woman and a woman. I want to ask you, how did Rob Bell, and and he's not alone, how did he just redefine marriage? It's just love. It's, It's just a loving relationship. I'm not a prophet, the son of a prophet, but I think we, we do have to pay attention to where our culture is going. And when you redefine marriage, now all we have is just loving relationships. And, and here's where we're going, and I pray to God I'm wrong. I don't think I am, but I, I hope I'm wrong. But it's going to be woman and a woman. It's going to be a man and a man. It's going to be a man and a boy. It's going to be a man and three wives, four wives. And... and not only is it is a slippery slope, but the incline is becoming steeper and someone is greasing the slope. And we're just sliding. And, and I'm just telling you, what, what has surprised me is not where we are, but how fast we're, we're getting there. Before Michelle and I ever got married, I said the one issue where I could see myself getting thrown in prison is this one right here. I said I could see myself reading this passage in 1 Corinthians 6 and being arrested and thrown in prison because of a hate crime. I, I've seen that coming for, for years. I've seen us going in that direction. But this is what has surprised me, and maybe you're in this category as well. What has surprised me is how quickly the culture has shifted on this issue. How quickly this is being embraced by the broader culture. How quickly churches are caving on this. How quickly whole denominations are ordaining homosexual ministers or priests. That, that's what is surprising me. And it's going so fast. I really, if, if I have another 20 years to live, I, I think we're going to be absolutely shocked where we are. And we're just, we're going to say 20 years from now, can you see where we are? But here's, here's the other part. We have to be prepared as a church to speak to this culture. So, for example, we've already talked about this in different men's studies. Uh, what are we going to do if on a Sunday morning a converted Muslim uh, com- comes in with his three wives and his 12 children? Converted Muslim. How are we going to counsel him? How, how are we going to counsel uh the married, so-called married lesbian or homosexual couple that comes into church and they've been converted to Christ. What are we going to say? And and here this is this is going to just mushroom in the years to come. Gender confusion. I, I heard something on on a political show that that I hadn't heard before, and it, it just challenged me. They were talking about gender identity issues, and, and one of the guests on the panelists said. Well, it's just a scientific fact that you're born male or female. And another guest on the panel said, you're talking about sex. There's a difference between sex and gender. And that's what I said. I I was like, wow. And he looked at the other guy like, why don't you read a book? I thought, wow, now we're making a distinction between sex and gender. I thought they were the same thing. I thought those were synonymous terms. So you can be born a man, but your gender is female. You can be born female, but your and there's going to be all kinds of confusion. And many of you have have heard the stories in California. You know, five year olds, you can decide on whether you're a girl today or a boy, and you can use different restrooms. Those of you who have had little children, you you know they're so confused. They they don't know. So you know what's going to happen. And this, this should break our hearts. And seriously, we should weep. They are going to grow up so confused. And the church has to be ready. This, this is where it gets tough. The church has to be ready to embrace us. And they have to know they can get help. And we say, we can help you sort this out. 
And again, this is going to be a big issue. And I, I think many of you know people already in this area. This is going to grow. So somehow, we've we got to speak the truth in love. People are going to be crying out for help. Again, I hope I'm wrong. Right? This is just going to mushroom. You, you can just see it. And it's happening so fast. Well, one more. What, what's the answer? And we need to remember that the answer is not politics. It's not education. Sometimes we think it's education. Sometimes we think if we can just win them over to our worldview, if we can just tell them how destructive this behavior is, we have to remember the Gospel is the answer. Repentance and worship is the way out. If they will repent, if they will put their faith in Christ, they can be set free. Um, we, got, we got into this mess through false worship. That's what Romans 1 says. For although they knew God from the creation of the world, they neither thanked God nor glorified Him. Therefore, God gave them over to homosexuality. Romans 1. We got into this mess because it's the judgment of God. That's what we have to see. We're not worshiping God, so God judges us with sin. And then when we're involved in sin, we have to say, this is wrong. We repent. We worship God. And D.A. Carson stated it really well. He said, we got into this sexual morass through false worship and we will get out through true worship. True worship. This, this is how we get our orienting straightened out, corrected. This is why coming together on a Sunday is, is so important. We worship God and, and He transforms us. He sanctifies us. And, and He sets us free from all kinds of sins. Worship is powerful. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And what God has done for you and what God has done for me, He can do for anybody. He can do for anybody. And let's pray that God will use us to bring people to Himself and to set them free. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the power of the Gospel. We thank You that through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven. We can be set free from the chains of sin. We thank You that through Christ, our desires are being transformed. Even if it seems like they're painfully, slowly being transformed. We thank You that they are being transformed. Father, help all of us to continue to fight the spiritual battle of, of different desires. And Father, as we talk to people about the transformation that the Gospel brings about, I pray that we do it in humility, remembering where we were until You got a hold of us and changed us. So Father, help us to speak the truth with love and grace and concern to those who are lost. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.